Before we get started, uh, if you don't have a Bible, I believe we have some in the back and uh, some folks that will pass those out. If you would just raise up your hand, um, we won't have a, tr- a traditional outline this morning, so you'll want a Bible to follow along with. So, if this is your first time at the bridge, uh, I'm not Jerry Kellen. As uh, Katie had mentioned earlier, Jerry and his wife Sue are uh, on a well-deserved rest and uh, visiting family in California, so they'll be gone for the next few weeks. My wife and I are proud to call the bridge our home. Uh, For the past few years, we've served in a couple different capacities, and I'm thrilled to be here this morning uh, to share a few things that God has been working on my life with. So before we get started, I'll pray uh, pray to open up. Father God, we just praise you for the chance to come together to fellowship, to um, to praise you through song, through uh, through worship, through giving, uh, and through looking at your word. Lord, I pray just for your words to speak as we open up your scripture this morning. Um, pray that you bless the uh, the volunteers helping our our kids in Bridge Kids. Um, and Lord, we pray we give this time up to you in the name of your Son and power of your Spirit. Amen. I distinctly remember the words, he has no pulse, as I looked at the sky lying on the ground. It was last September. uh, I had entered a marathon relay with some extended family up between Hayward and Cable on the Berkebiner cross-country ski trail. We'd gone up there. It was a beautiful, crisp fall morning. And there were six of us on this marathon relay team over this hilly cross-country ski trail. And other people were running marathons, some were running half marathons. We all started at the same time. And throughout the course of this trail, there were were logging roads and other fire lanes that, that kind of bisected the trail as we went. And those were our transition points for the relay. And so our first runner started off with everybody else, and then the rest of us on our team got in a car, and and we drove and caravanned with these other teams along these narrow dirt fire lanes and and logging roads to the next transition point where we would wait for the runner to to arrive. The transition would happen, and the next runner on the team would take off. And so that started off well, and there were six of us on our team. My wife, uh, brother-in-law, sister, sister sister-in-law, brother, another friend. I was the fourth of six runners, and... Uh, the first three came. We made the transition. Uh, I finished up my leg about six, six and a half miles and came to my transition where my wife Holly would, would take, uh, they had this little hair scrunchie that we used for uh, a baton, so to speak, and where she would take that and start the fifth leg. And so I had finished up. I was spent, and I kept, I kept walking around for the next three to five minutes after finishing up running just to keep my muscles loose. Um, hands on my head to try to keep as much air um, into my lungs as possible. And then I saw a marathon runner kind of come around the, the course up to this transition point. And you could tell because the color on his bib indicated he, was, he had been running this whole thing since the start. And the next thing I knew, this, uh, this guy was on, on the ground, his back on the ground, his knees bent up like uh, he had the wind knocked out of him. And another member of our team ran over there, and, and she said, uh, he says he's okay, but he doesn't look good. And the next thing you knew, he, he was unconscious. Um, he had stopped breathing. You could see it in his face. 
uh, she checked his pulse and she, she yelled out, he has no pulse. This guy had collapsed and he was having some sort of serious cardiac event right in front of us. And amazingly, there, at this transition point, there was a water station. There were other spectators. There were other runners waiting to run. And there, there were three or four medical professionals right there. My, my brother-in-law, who was a physician, um, was there. And there were three or four other nurses or EMTs or doctors uh, that amazingly were able to be there. And this was all in a matter of um, 20 to 40 seconds that all of this scene is transpiring. And they immediately started CPR. They started the chest compressions. And, and I heard them yell out, you know, uh, check the time so they could, they could watch uh, and keep track of how long they had been administering CPR. And they looked at his bib number. And one of the, the race volunteers this had this walkie-talkie that was cutting in and out. They tried to radio in to the race organizers to try to find out this guy's name so that they could speak out to him even though he was unconscious and see if there was any family or friends waiting for him at the finish line. He wasn't a part of a relay, and so there was nobody at this particular transition station that knew him. And it was this helpless feeling. The, the only thing a, a few of the other of us could do was, was start to reroute the traffic of incoming runners around this scene that was unfolding um, to give them space. And a few minutes go by, and the people administering CPR would, would alternate uh, as, as they got tired every minute or so. And somebody else would step in, and they would keep doing the chest compressions. And I remember him calling out five minutes had gone by. And this seems like an eternity. There's, um, it's the longest five minutes I've ever witnessed. And I'm not in the medical profession. I've never been a part of a crisis situation like this. This seems like it's going on forever. And seven minutes went by, and they were still rotating out, doing chest compressions, and they had uh, radioed into an ambulance along the course that was stationed halfway on the, on the course, but we were about three-quarters of the way. And this ambulance was trying to find its way on these, on these old logging roads that didn't have names to this transition point where we were. And everybody was extremely uncomfortable with this I was this scene that was happening 50 feet over my back shoulder. And the ambulance arrived, and uh, the first thing out of their, their mouth, the people that were, were administering CPR, is get the AED, that's an automatic external defibrillator, a little pack um, that they got out of the ambulance, and they, they stopped chest compressions for a second, and they, they put these two little electrodes on different sides of his chest, and they, sh- and they yelled, clear, and they shocked him. And then they, they kept doing chest compressions for a few more seconds, and then they yelled, clear again, and they put the, compre- the chest pads on, on kitty corner sides of his heart, and they shocked him again. And they put him on the, the stretcher, and they put the stretcher into the ambulance, and they spent a few seconds trying to figure out how to get back to the nearest hospital, and they were off. And uh, this whole thing taking part in 10, 12 minutes, and I looked, at this, I looked at this guy, and he didn't look that much older than, than I was. And I got to thinking, what's the condition of my heart as I was reflecting on this whole scene afterwards? And instinctively, without thinking about it, I, I take two fingers, and I put them up to my neck, and I feel my pulse. <laughs> and uh, 
and I'm just reminded of the of the preciousness of life. Now, we found out later uh, this man had been transported to Hayward. There was a, a helicopter waiting in Hayward. It took him to Duluth. And somehow this guy ended up living and walking out of the hospital later that week because of people who saw an immediate crisis need and they acted and they never gave up. Now that was the first of two two life-saving experiences that I've witnessed over the past eight months. And initially, this question of what's the condition of my heart, what began as a medical question, quickly turned into something deeper than that. It, it became a spiritual question that I've, I've been reflecting on about what's the condition of my heart before God. And so medically, there's a number of different ways that you can, you can look at and assess the, the uh, health of a heart. Uh, you can look at family history and diet and exercise, um, x-rays, EKGs, all these different angles that you can look at the, the medical condition of a heart. And spiritually, as you look in the Bible, there's, there's a number of different ways, too, that we can get an idea of where our heart is with God. And so one of those ways, there's, there's a variety, but one of those ways that kept repeating and repeating in my study over the past eight months was the idea of generosity. And generosity can, can express itself in a number of different ways. Um, today we'll look at a passage in 2 Corinthians that, that looks at generosity from three particular ways. From finances, from time and service, and from words of encouragement. And so we'll look at this passage in 2 Corinthians on gen- generosity. And I'll share a few things that, that the Lord has been teaching me in convicting me with over the past few months. So if you have a bridge Bible, uh, the pages will be in our 805 in one of the versions. Then we have a newer version that's uh, page 1163. And this is 2 Corinthians, about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. We begin in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So as I came across this passage and was just reflecting on this being one of the the key areas in scriptures that that, that it talks about, the condition of our hearts before God of, of generosity, I just kept thinking, well, what makes a cheerful giver? That's not, that's not my automatic default to be, to be cheerful when giving of finances time or even um, going out of my way to, to give people words of encouragement. So what makes a cheerful giver? Now, we'll expand uh, this immediate passage uh, to, to the surrounding chapters, 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, and chapter 9. And we'll look at a few passages in there. We won't read the whole thing, but we'll just look at a few passages in there uh, that help us, give us a better understanding of that. Now, the context for 2 Corinthians is Paul is writing a letter 
to the Corinthian church. He's in a region of Macedonia. It's the churches of um, the Philippian church, Thessalonian church. And he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. This is about 25, 24, 25 years after Christ died. And specifically in, in chapters 8 and 9, um, he's raising support to help believers in Jerusalem. There's a famine in Jerusalem. There's an immediate need. There's a crisis in that area. And what he's doing is he's taken up, uh, he's taken up a collection in Macedonia, and he's also appealing to other churches to step in and help meet that need. And so he's helping take up this collection. There's a few people that are giving of their time and their talents and service and will help him in taking these resources to Jerusalem to help minister in their need. And so he's appealing now to the Corinthian church. And so we'll pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 is the first first segment we'll look at. And Paul writes, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up with rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urged, pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Paul starts out, and number one, he commends the generosity of the churches that he's working with already in Macedonia. And then he appeals to the Corinthian churches. He says there's an an immediate need And just as other brothers and sisters in Christ have stepped up to meet that need, so too he's appealing to these churches to help do that. And so as I keep thinking about, well, what's what's the source? What's the the source of a cheerful heart like like these churches had? There's one thing that keeps repeating throughout the passage. Like a heartbeat, it keeps repeating. And it's grace, grace, grace grace four times in these eight or nine verses verse one verse six verse eight verse nine paul says that the the foundation of generous living is a greater recognition of the grace of god grace is Unmerited favor. Um, Writer and author and speaker Chuck Swindoll, uh, in his book Grace Awakening, he says, to show grace is to extend favor or kindness to one who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. Receiving God's acceptance by grace stands in sharp contrast to earning it on the basis of works. And Paul also, in Ephesians, 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which Jesus prepared, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So repeated throughout this first passage, Paul keeps coming back and he keeps reminding them of grace, of grace, of grace. And the example he highlights in particular is, is Jesus coming to earth of the incarnation. This thing that we, we can commonly make a nice Christmas pared down version, but he's saying the incarnation is such a shocking event that God in his infinite power sent, sent his son to be a powerless infant. He exchanged his glory in this perfect relationship among God and, and the Holy Spirit and he entered into our world. He condescended himself. He lowered himself to our level. And it's so easy to, to read that and skim over that and not grasp what a shocking event that is. You know, when those angels announced to those shepherds, glory to God in the highest, they might as well have been saying, clear, and then, boom, the incarnation comes because it's a shocking event that a God in all his perfect majesty in a perfect relationship would send his son on our behalf even though we didn't deserve it. And there's nothing we could do to earn his favor. In his grace, Jesus comes. And so Paul highlights the incarnation and he says, he keeps repeating this theme of grace, grace, grace. That's the foundation for generous living. And in this case of the church's generous financial giving. But it doesn't end with generous financial giving. The next passage we'll look at a little bit further on in chapter 8 is in verse 16. So 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's come to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all all of the churches for his service of the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry this offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. So what Paul does now, after commending the churches for their financial generosity, he highlights and points out two people at least that are helping, that are taking of their time and serving. He highlights Titus. He highlights another unnamed person in the church. And he says these two guys, at least, not only have helped us in the giving, they will help us in serving, in helping administer. They are taking of their time, they're putting their schedule on hold, and they're helping us serve. And so the second area of generosity that is built on grace is just generous giving of one's time. And that's one area that's really, really been hitting home 
with me in my study recently. And this doesn't mean you know, we don't have boundaries on, we don't have healthy boundaries on our time. You say yes to every opportunity that comes available, but it does mean that in some consistent fashion, believers who have a true grasp of God's grace are, gi- are giving of themselves in some way with their schedule and their time. The final section as we wrap up chapter 9, at, uh, or as, as we wrap up this passage, is at the end of chapter 9. So in 9.12, chapter 9, verse 12, Paul writes, The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God. For the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so Paul, as he wraps up this section, speaking of generosity, he himself models generous words of encouragement. As he speaks to the churches, he, say, he says, the, these acts of grace which, which you'll be a part of will not only minister to this church, they will praise the Lord for, what, for your giving. And so he himself models in his writing to these churches, he models these words of encouragement that are also a sign of generosity. And so just as one might take two fingers and put, put them on your neck to feel your pulse medically, from a spiritual standpoint, I've been more and more convicted that I can take two fingers and put them on my watch or my wallet or my lips to get an indication of where my heart stands before God in generosity with my time, my finances, and my words of encouragement to friends and family and others. What I love about this narrative is Paul, is in these two chapters in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's not just giving the numbers. This isn't by any means a, a purely financial pitch. In fact, we don't even know what the, what the total amount given by these churches was. But he tells a narrative on top of the numbers. He, he tells the story of, of how Christ's example of coming to earth is the basis for all of our generosity and that a greater recognition of his grace bowls us over with, with generosity. The more and more we can get a glimpse of of what his grace is, the more and more the scales can fall off our eyes and our hearts and we get a picture of of his grace, the more and more we reflect that in our own lives. In all these different areas, but he's, he's highlighting three in particular. And what I also love about this passage is it reminds me of the second event in the past eight months that I've witnessed this life 
saving experience. And that, interestingly enough, was also at a marathon relay. It was two weeks ago with the Eau Claire Marathon. Many of you um, were part of Team World Vision. I think we had, there were over 50 or so people that were running and raising money for Team World Vision for clean water in Africa. Over 30-some, 30 36 or so from this church alone. $34,000 were, were raised in total. That is an awesome life-saving experience. And we had, we had leaders that, that came here, and, and we had coaches here that came and shared their heart about identifying this need, this crisis need, and about acting And so it was a privilege just to witness the way that, that this church, among others in this community, was able to step up and help reflect some of the generosity that, that we've received from God and reflect this out into our world through raising support. But more so than just the numbers, the stories that come out of that, the people that say, hey, what's that orange jersey for? And the opportunity to, to tell somebody what, what was going on. The stories of, of people now having access to, to clean water that didn't before. The stories of people receiving uh, donations from others that they hadn't heard from in years. And so much more than just the financial amount which was raised, which was awesome. It was this narrative that goes on top of the numbers. The story that goes with the giving that that we were able to step into something that God was already doing and be a part of this gracious act that, that he was raising up um, churches all over this country and all, all across the world to be a part of. This life-saving um, act of generosity, which is really just a reflection of his grace and his life-saving sending of his son to Jesus to die on our behalf and to rise again. So in conclusion, there's, there's two different applications I'd like to highlight. One, up to God. And over the past few months, my prayer has just been personally that I would have a greater and greater and greater appreciation for His grace. That I would continually have just a deeper and deeper understanding of what his grace means, of, of his true generosity in sending his son. And then that would break down the scales in my heart. And that I would be able to reflect that. The more and more that I can see a true picture of that, the more and more I pray that I would reflect that. And number two, in, in relationships with others, Some of you think there's, there's probably relationships in your life that, that just as I thought this man on the side of this uh, marathon trail was dead, you might have relationships with other people that you think are dead. But I would encourage you, never, never give up. I watched these people administer CPR for over 10 minutes when I was convinced this guy was dead, and they never, they never, they never gave up. And the one thing I'm convicted of with generosity is God didn't give up on us. He sent his son. And that through gener generous acts, 
whether it's the ability to keep spending time with somebody, keep spending time with a neighbor, a family member, somebody who who you, you think that relationship might be beyond repair. Never give up. Never give up with words of encouragement. You can always keep that pattern up, even in a case where you think it's hopeless. If you keep the pattern, just grace, 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 words of grace. Gracious giving of your time. With organizations that that we have opportunities to give to, sometimes um, the need seems so great that we think what little we can give, what difference does this, does it make? Never give up. Grace, grace, grace. It's a foundation for our generosity in all areas of our life. Never give up. I love the song that we sang earlier. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never gives up on me. Never give up on generosity. Never give up on generosity in all areas of your life. Please pray with me. Father God, Lord, I I pray just personally for a greater and greater understanding of your grace, of what you gave up to enter into our world, to be nailed to a cross for my sin, but to conquer sin and death through the empty tomb. Lord, I just pray for the scales to fall off my eyes and my heart just to see the gracious acts and the gracious works which you're already doing in our world and Lord to have the courage to step into those step into those acts and be a part of serving with my time giving with my finances Lord and and encouraging with my words I pray we never give up Lord I pray we never give up on generosity because you, you are our true model of grace and generosity. Amen.